1: Welcome to episode 124 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's Mom. Today, I have the pleasure to speak with Darla. Darla really reminded me of a good friend of mine that I have from high school. Her name is Kirsten. Kirsten and Darla have something in common that both of their sons carry the diagnosis of cystic fibrosis. Now, Kirsten's son, Henry, is still living, And doing remarkably well. He is the same age as my son, Andy. After Andy died, Kirsten was the only one of my high school friends, really, to drop everything, jump on an airplane, and fly here to see me in Grand Rapids in my pain. She didn't call first or email or do anything. She just showed up. The first time I saw her was at Andy's visitation really didn't take me too long to figure out why she would be the one to drop everything and come. You see, since Henry's diagnosis, Kirsten would have been living with the idea that she might outlive her son. So she knew that was a possibility. And when it did happen to me, and our boys are the same age, she was the first one to come running. So I've never really dedicated episodes to anyone in the past, but this week, I really do want to dedicate this episode to my amazing friend Kirsten and her awesome son, Henry. I certainly hope that Kirsten never has to go through the pain that we have had to go through losing our children, but I so appreciate the fact that she was so willing to walk through it with me. Thank you, Kirsten, and I hope... You and everyone else enjoy listening to Darla and Ray's story. Thank you so much, Darla, for agreeing to come on the Always Andy's Mom podcast. I really look forward to talking today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So why don't you just start out by talking to us a little bit about your son Ray?
2: Sure. Sure. So my son was feisty and stubborn and just the right amount of, you know, mischief to make him interesting but not dangerous. He was also kind and thoughtful and a really good friend, always looking out for the underdog. Super nice loyal, good friend to his younger sister, Martha. Mm-hmm. And he kind of had this knack for bringing people together with his personality, very positive energy, and a wonderful sense of humor. So he was the best thing he could do. The thing that made him the happiest is making people laugh. Uh-huh. And, you know, I kind of think there's show offs in this world, and there are entertainers, and there's a big difference. So show-offs, to me, want to get attention for themselves while entertainers perform to make other people happy. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. Ray was an entertainer. In fact, if he hadn't heard me laugh, say a day went by, he would up the game and do something ridiculously funny. And I'd crack up and he'd say, I still got it, Mom. I can still make it. (laughs) You know, that that was his goal. So he was you know, I, and I think, you know, you can probably think of at least one person in your life and probably all your listeners can think of someone who has that positive energy and they, you just want to be around them. And if you, if that same person has a lot of challenges in their life and they still bring their A game and make other people happy, that makes them just a little more exceptional mm-hmm. and raised challenges came in the form of cystic fibrosis. Okay. So if don't know what that is. It's a hereditary disease. It's a life-threatening illness. And there's a defective gene that creates thicker and stickier than normal mucus, which can wreak havoc on the body in a number of ways. Um, most concerning is the digestive system and the respiratory system. Mm-hmm. So that thick mucus starts to block things and it blocks the release of digestive enzy- enzymes that you need to break down your food and Use the nutrients in our food. So slow growth and malnutrition is oftentimes the indicator that leads to a diagnosis of Mm -hmm. CF. Mm -hmm. And that was the case for Ray. And it didn't happen for maybe a year and a half. And I kept telling his pediatrician, I think something's wrong. Everything just seems to go straight through him. And I feed him all the time. And he's just low on the growth chart. And it was kind of slipping down. And he would always minimize it, like, well, try a different formula, or sometimes, you know, when kids are teething, they'll have loose stools or, you know, this or that. And I said, I I just, in my heart, I just feel like there's something wrong. This doesn't seem normal. And so he's about a year and a half. And his doctor said, I think there is a, like a malabsorption problem. I'm going to test him, schedule a test. We called it a sweat test for cystic fibrosis. And I hadn't really even heard what that was mm-hmm. it, it, you know maybe I've heard the name but I didn't know what it entailed and so I asked him I said well what is cystic fibrosis he goes well we're just gonna rule out the worst and we'll go from there and he just scurried out of the room and I thought and I'm sitting there with Ray and and he said you know drops that bomb and leaves and I'm like how bad is cystic fibrosis if it's the worst and what's a sweat test I don't even know what that is Oh no. and I made I went up to the receptionist to make the appointment, and he had scribbled something on the top of this form, and I bring it up to her, and she looks at it, and her little cheery smile just faded, and I go, what, and she goes, do you know what CF is, I said, I'm not sure, he didn't tell me, he just said, we have to rule out the worst, and she goes, let's hope so, it's not good.
1: Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. Because like, you know, I'm a pediatrician. I don't know if I had told you that. but I'm a pediatrician. This is what I do. And this was handled so badly.
2: (laughs) She actually asked me to follow her. And she took me into like a storage little closet and started whispering like, do you know what CF is? And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Just tell me what it is. And she goes, it's a genetic... Disease mm-hmm. it affects the digestive and the respiratory systems. The life expectancy is late teens, early twenties at mm-hmm. best. And yeah. just walked back to the front.
1: Because this, what year was this? Uh, um, 1990.
2: Yeah, I was
1: gonna say yeah. So it must
2: have been. They're better. They're they're much better now. Much yes yes. So that mm-hmm. was my introduction, and I it was pre-internet. I somehow drove I don't know how you know I was just like devastated and I went to our neighborhood library and looked up in a medical journal journal to see what this was so that is hanging over your head when your child has an illness that has a life expectancy attached to it you pay more attention mm-hmm. you know I would I just watched so closely because I thought is this my time with him you know yeah and then a backup with the respiratory system. So he got diagnosed because of the slow weight gain, the mucus can start clogging the airways. And that is a nice little breeding ground for bacteria, which leads to lung infections, which leads to scarring of the airways and lung damage. And to combat that, uh, my son breathed in nebulized medications. And then my husband and I took turns literally pounding the snot out of him. (laughs) We Mm -hmm. would cup our hands and pound on his chest, his back, his sides in an effort to break up that mucus so he could cough it up and spit it out. So it's very glamorous.
1: Now they've got big fancy uh, vests that you wear.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. so he was probably, Ray was probably six, seven years old when that came out. Mm -hmm. And his CF doctor, his pulmonologist from the U of M, was one of the co-creators of the airway clearance uh-huh. machine. So instead of pounding, he slipped into a vest that's had hoses that hooked to our air compressor and that just blasted yep. air against his chest. So pulsating and and he didn't like either one of those things. I'm sure not, so he,
1: it's not fun. No. For a year and a half,
2: he has no idea why we're doing this. I can't explain it. So his really easygoing personality he turned into a fighter and I remember one of the respiratory therapists in the hospital because he was hospitalized for about a week to run tests and then for my husband and I to learn how to care for him he goes I've never seen anyone this young fight so hard against the and He because he's going to need it he's going to be a fighter he's going to need it to manage CF and like yeah, but it's really hard on us, but you know, we, it was non-negotiable. I I was a stickler for the treatments. And five years after Ray was born, we had our daughter, Martha, and she too was diagnosed. So with every pregnancy, you have a chance of passing down those defective genes. So she was diagnosed as well. And I think that was a common denominator that brought a brother and a sister, especially close. Yeah. They had this really, really tight bond and they were just in cahoots, you know, they, <laughs> they were just wonderful together, but also just on every adventure and misadventure in our neighborhood, they were kind of the ringleaders mm-hmm. and um, just had a, a, a lot of fun. And and I think the thing I was most proud of besides they were just decent human beings, they were never or they never allowed anyone to identify them by their illness. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew what went on behind closed doors. Much of what we did to care for them was private, and not that we were ashamed, but it was a procedure that it's a workout. You know, you have to like do some huffing and coughing, and and so that it, we needed to be focused on that. And so nobody knew that Ray and Martha what they had to go through before they met their friends at the bus stop when they went to school or in right. the summer when they would play in the neighborhood nobody really got an inside look so my book Muddy Thursday mm-hmm. I kind of swing that door wide open and it was very important to me to bring some awareness to CF because it only affects about 30,000 people in the United States so it's not well known, or it's misunderstood, or like myself, I had to go look it up in a journal, medical journal. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what they went through, it it just, you know, their friends didn't quite know. And since my book came out, even our closest neighbors, they're like, I thought we knew. And there's so much we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so that was an important aspect of putting that into the book. So at the age of 12, he, I don't know. Should I go into that? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. So he, you know, he was just the friendliest. Just had a ton of friends. Just uh-huh. a vivacious, wonderful kid. And so the the night he passed away, he received his first communion. We had gone to church, and Martha, his sister, decided to stay back. Her friend had, had invited her to go see a movie, so she was with her friend. And then when we came back, we had a we had dinner as well with my parents and we pulled into our driveway and I said, Hey, Reed, why don't you go down and, and get Martha from the neighbors just three houses down. Mm-hmm. And he goes, yeah, okay. And he started to take off running through our front yard. And at the last second, he kind of turned over, you know, looked over his shoulder at me and he said, Hey, do you want to race me? And he had already taken off. And I said, well, I guess not. You took off without me. <laughs> Those were his last words to me. Uh-huh. Do you want to race me? And my last words to him is, you already took off without me. And he never came back. Like you know, I'm waiting around, and I was, I went inside, I'm talking to my husband for a minute. He was on, he got a phone call, and he's, a, he at the time, he's retired now, but he was a St. Paul police officer. So by the nature of the conversation, I thought he's talking to a coworker, and. I could just kind of whisper to him, I'm going to go down to the neighbors and thank them for watching Martha. And, you know, they, they didn't come back. And figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I figured knowing Ray, he's in there. You know, Chichan, bragging yeah. about drinking wine. At, yeah. You know, when he had his first <laughs> communion. I like, hey, drink wine tonight. So I walked down and on the, in the corner of my, you know, I caught my attention. There was just something kind of dark. It was n- night, you know, it was dark out. And there, there was like a dip in, in the yard of the neighbors. So kind of low and I kind of glanced over and didn't quite figure out what it was. And as I got closer, it was Ray lying in the grass. And he was a prankster, like always pulling pranks on everyone. So I thought he was, I could just picture him going, you know, here comes mom. Let's scare her. Cause I figured Martha was somewhere near him as well. So I just like, sauntered up to him and you know there was no nothing in me that went oh my gosh this is a medical emergency nothing in me which that was a guilt thing that I still deal with it's like how could I not know that my son was in trouble and I actually walked up to him and went okay you can never beat me in a stare stare down you know I said I know you're gonna laugh and I got a closer look at him and he was still holding still but he had like a slight smile on his face and his eyes were you know I thought oh they're not even flickering he's doing a really good job of of, yeah you know being still and it wasn't until I I reached down and and touched his shoulders and I'm like he's out cold and I even even at that point I go okay joke's over you know I'm gonna call nine one one if you don't get up And then I touched him and went, oh, my gosh, I I ran to the neighbors to to their front door and said, Ray collapsed in your yard, call 911. And then I went back to him and I, I don't know why, I just panicked where I thought I have to get rusty, my husband. It's like he's a police officer, he's done, you know, CPR and whatever. I'm like, I got to get rusty, I got to get rusty, I just have to get home. And it felt really wrong to run away from him. But when I looked back. Our neighbor guy, Ken, was with Ray, and his wife was on the front doorstep with the phone in her mm-hmm. hand. So I, I thought, my bases are covered. Somebody's with Ray. Somebody's getting medical help. And I ran home, and, you know, probably days went by when I said, Rusty, what did I say to you? I don't remember yeah Here's one word. He just went, Ray. And I ran back out the door, and Rusty passed me. just bolted. And and then I heard Ken, our neighbor say, he's not breathing. And, you know, my husband tried to uh, revive him. And it was quite a a long time. I can't tell you if it was one minute or five minutes, but it felt like eternity before the medics arrived. And he just couldn't be revived. So we, you know, with CF, that's not what happens. It's a progressive slow thing where your airways, you know, the lung damage or whatever. I mean, this was not CF related and I could not, I'm like, what just happened? Yeah. How can, I just saw him running. Mm -hmm. He was fine. Mm -hmm. And my son was an athlete. You name a sport, he played it. He played hockey, basketball, baseball. He was a skier, a swimmer a golfer, he earned about black belt and karate by the time he was 10. So he was physically fit, which was really good for his lungs. And he had a checkup maybe a month before. And they always listened to his heart, listen, you know, mm-hmm. listen to his chest. It's like, he's never, you know, it was a arrhythmia, a uh, ARVD, arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia. And it's the kind of thing you probably heard of young athletes that Mm -hmm. just drop on a basketball court and they can't be revived it's just a sudden electrical failure basically when I talked to his doctor we we, you know I say it was a mysterious death because I feel like if you have to have an autopsy to find out Mm -hmm. how somebody passed it's a mystery and we just could not figure out how this happened and his doctor said it's I had the guilt of if i had done something right away could would the outcome be different Mm -hmm. because it's immediate it's just and he said it's usually males Mm -hmm. usually not as young as ray maybe in their 20s and teens like yeah
1: yeah yeah
2: so you know everything you think with cf and then we get blindsided by something else yeah you know i always had this hope of medical advancements and things are gonna get easier. And so there was this number attached, but always hope attached as well. And then we get blindsided by something else. And he worked so hard to stay healthy. I mean, every day and those respiratory treatments I talked about, they lasted about 45 minutes and we did them twice a day on both of our kids, morning and night. If they were exhibiting more symptoms, producing more mucus than normal, we upped those treatments to three or four times a day. So I think of cystic fibrosis as kind of the epitome of a life interrupted. Every mm-hmm. day is interrupted by those treatments, and if those at home treatments fail, then they're pulled out oh, of life yeah. altogether. And there's a hospital stay involved with pick lines for IV antibiotics. And but every moment in between those best treatments was golden.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I had. rule of you can't skip the treatments but the next rule was just as important have fun yeah go have fun I'm not gonna have you do chores and you know sort your sock drawer when you've just sat through a a treatment and tethered to a machine so it was a free-for-all in between and you know it to have that you know blindsided I think the first thing my husband said in the hospital when they They said, there's nothing more we can do for him. And he kind of, my husband's a big guy and he just kind of draped himself over our son. And he goes, you worked too hard for this. You worked too hard for this to happen. So we lose this wonderful boy. And then my daughter, that's her only sibling. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And so my story comes through is all of a sudden there's this little girl by herself you know, and not only her only sibling, her best friend, her partner in crime. Yeah, I was thinking the same term, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And the only other person she knew that had CF, they had each other. So I think one of the saddest visual images that have has stayed with me all these years, is her doing her treatments by herself. If Somebody came to the door and asked Ray to play and Martha was still doing her best treatments. He'd say, I'll come see you a little later. I'll come out, you know, I'll meet up with you later. And he'd come in, back in the house and stay with Martha until she was done with her. So they had this partnership. And to see her doing that by herself, I just remember thinking you are in for the fight of your life on your own. You're going to have to get tough. The sidekick isn't there. And he championed for her. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I just think, where did he come from? How did this kid, for instance, when he was 10 years old, he started falling off the growth chart again, like really low in weight. And his CF doctor cut a deal with Ray because he protested there there was talk of getting a feeding tube. So mm-hmm. he'd have supplemental feedings at night and then Get through the day as usual you know eating his meals and whatever but his body just needed more than he could take in and his doctor cut a deal because ray's like no way i i'm not going to get this he said if you drink these weight gain shakes every day you come back in a month if you gain at least three pounds we'll put it on the back burner for now well ray would have a hard time gaining three pounds in three months much Mm -hmm. less you know for a week so he didn't make the cut we were doing the weight gain shakes every day and I hid the scale Mm
0: -hmm.
2: claiming that it was broken because I (laughs) didn't want him to be discouraged I didn't want to yeah 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 it was just too much so we drove to the clinic not knowing what he weighed and he stepped on the scale and we knew that he knew where he had what number he had to hit and he just looked down and burst into tears because it was you know inevitable that he'd have to get the feeding tube and it was the beginning of summer and he said well when do I have to have it and before the doctor could schedule something my husband jumped in and he said you don't have to do it till the end of summer you enjoy the summer and so August kind of hung over our head and I was kind of thinking I don't think we're supposed to wait and he goes let him have one more shirtless summer without this feeding tube in Mm -hmm. and so he gets the surgery and nobody told us that initially it's like a big long tube and then once it heals they take that and put it well his doctor called it a button we all call it a button so it made it sound (laughs) yeah it made it sound cute you know because it's like a Ball valve, you know, yeah, it is. It looks like a beach ball there, then, valve, mm-hmm, yeah, but we call it the you know, huh. Yeah, so you know, somehow it made it cute. So he comes out of surgery and goes, Oh, no, what is this? What because it, it was long yeah. and he had to coil it up yeah. and put it in kind of a mesh girdle type of thing. And he goes, I wouldn't have signed up for this if I knew it looked like that. And which was typical of Ray, he always like we never pushed him to do anything. All his sports were him deciding and he'd go, Hey, my friend plays hockey. Can you sign me up for hockey? It was always, can you sign me up? I want to try this. Can you sign me up? So it was kind of typical of him to go, I would not have signed up for this feeding tube if I knew it looked like that. Mm -hmm. And then the nurses were explaining, no, 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 no. You'll get this big tube taken out. Get the button. It's not going to look like that for very long. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we get home from the hospital. I'm doing the first tube feeding at night and he lifts his pajama shirt up and we had bunk beds in his room and Martha would go on the top bunk and she's kind of hanging over looking at what's going on. And I got the pump, you know, with the feeding, the bag and hooking him up and he rolls up his pajama top and he said, I don't like this thing. It, I, I feel like I, you know, I look like an alien. I don't like it. But if somebody has to have it, I'm glad it's me and not Martha. Oh. I just went, who like yeah. you're 10 I would be like why couldn't she get it instead of me right. you know I, he would do anything for her and so this that loss you know never mind my pain and and it changed my life it changed mm-hmm. my husband's life but our daughter was extremely affected because she had to deal with all her complications that compiled as as she aged and I'll get to the good part. She's 28 years old now. Yeah. And for the last 2 years, she's been on a drug called Trikaftin. that was a breakthrough drug for CF. Since those 2 years, she's not been hospitalized once with a lung infection which is unheard of. She's gained 20 pounds that were much needed. She rarely coughs, which is still like I can't get used to it cuz it, I could if she walked through the door, she was coughing before she said hello. If we went shopping, I knew she was in the shoe department because I could hear her. You know, I could pick yeah. her out just from the cough was the introduction to to her. And it was all day long. And she'd cough through the night and wake up more like she got beat up instead of rested. And now we rarely hear her cough. She moved back in with us pre-pandemic, which is great. She wasn't isolated. She was safe with us. And we just it's like a game changer. And so there's so much hope in the CF community now more than ever. It's just changed her life. But from, I'd say 12 years old, things started to, uh, a lot of complications. She developed what we call CF-related diabetes. That mucus is blocking the release of insulin. So why have one disease when you can have two? You know, she's got CF and diabetes. So she had a lot of hospitalizations. I can't even count how many. I can't count how many pick lines she's had. Complications from that were like, sometimes they had to pull the line and she didn't get to run the whole course of antibiotics because she'd get a blood clot. There's just a slew of complications. So to see this last two years has just been remarkable. But all along the way, I thought Ray would have championed for her. He would have Mm
0: -hmm.
2: understood her fight. He would have been at her side so when i look at her i i she always looks a little bit lonesome to me and she has come into her her own and she's super funny she's tried her hand at stand-up comedy just like her brother very compassionate towards other people and i feel like when you have something yourself that's a challenge and somebody shows you even a small act of kindness It just goes a long way. I think of all the times that they couldn't go to different events and not go to school. I did my fair share of homeschooling and tutoring because they'd miss weeks at a time. And if somebody reached out, you know, maybe brought a gift or said hello, all those little things meant a great deal to them. And Mm -hmm. Ray was the same way. And now my daughter, they extend themselves because they just know. What even a a simple thing means to somebody else. So very compassionate, a lot of empathy for other people, which is remarkable to me. When they had their own, you know, issues that could very well be poor me, Mm -hmm. and I never saw that. I don't think they would have allowed it. You know, they rose above it. So our loss was multifaceted, and I'm sure that's the way for any parent. All the things you miss. I miss. I miss his friends you know I lost him and I lost all the connections to the families that you know he was part of and I and the ones in the neighborhood you just watch them their voices changing and they're driving and they're graduating high school and they're off to college and have careers and families of their own and one of the you know things about writing I felt like you know this is where the story ends when he passed and Nobody else is going to meet him. And so through writing, you know, he didn't get to carry on. I didn't get to see the young man he would have become. I didn't even get to be the mother of a teenage boy. But maybe in a small way, I can carry on for him through my story. And it's been pretty remarkable, people reaching out. And some of them will say, I feel like I feel like I got to know Ray. Yeah. You know, people that don't know us, you know, just reviews I see on on Amazon or on Goodreads and that's the one thing I feel like good I I I accomplished that when they say I I fell in love with this kid I got to to meet him I thought yeah okay you know there's some power in storytelling and um that just means a lot to me so
1: yeah it's just beautiful
2: that's kind of been my my journey going forward with and it, it was, as you know, it. I fell apart. I struggled. And one thing I didn't do, and maybe should have, I never sought out grief support, counseling. Yeah. And in my mind, I, I was stubborn and just thought, at the end of the day, there's an empty bedroom. What can you tell me that's going to make me feel better? I just was had resigned myself to thinking, I can't fix this. Yeah. So nobody else can either. Nobody can fix this for me. This is this is. I have to figure out how to go forward. And I had, you know, wrongly kind of turned away from finding peace and finding what's still left in your world, there's still some beauty in in life, and thought, I'm my luck, I'm going to live till I'm 95. And it's going to be a long, miserable life of pain and sadness and heartache. And about five, six years out from from Ray's death, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, maybe a couple years before that, I said to my husband, I think this is the kind of thing that makes you sick. He goes, What are you talking about? I go, Grief. I go, There's nowhere to put it. There's nowhere to release it. I think it festers and it can take you down mentally and physically. And he just shook his head, like, Where are you getting this? Like, I, I, I just feel like it's it's in me and I can't I don't know where to put it. I don't know how to get rid of it. I don't think you can get rid of it. So I just had this, you know, ugh you know feeling all the time.
1: Yeah. And
2: then sure enough, I get cancer. So it wasn't entirely surprising to me for some reason. I just felt like this this can bring you down. And the good thing, if there is any good thing about getting breast cancer. And I used to hate when people would say, well, cancer is like a gift. And I get cancer. And I'm like, really? Because if this is a gift, I'd like to return it. <laughs> like, can I exchange this for a trip to Maui or something? <laughs> but I get what they mean. I get why people say that it changes your perspective or, you know, there's some kind of change in your life. And for me, it happened actually my first round of chemo. And I have a chapter in my book called The Chemo Circle. So I'm Mm -hmm. sitting in this circle of patients getting, we're all tethered to an IV. And I look at each and every one of them, even though it seemed like that was discouraged, that nobody was looking at each other. But I kind of studied each and every one of them. And I decided I was probably the youngest person in in the circle. And that really ticked me off. I thought, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. And then I started thinking, maybe I do. Maybe this is exactly where I belong because I kept thinking, or at that moment, finally thought, who am I to squander the life I've been given, mm-hmm. no matter the challenges? Because that's what I had been doing. I found, I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I adore my daughter and I was happy watching her develop and the time I spent with her I tried to make as pleasant as possible for my sake her sake so there were moments of joy for sure but overall I wasn't engaged the way I used to be and Martha had a different mom and a different dad than she used to have yeah just distraught and sometimes not available you know just stuck in your own thoughts so in that chemo circle I just thought I've been I need to pay attention. I need to start living more fully. And that I like to think that I'm smart enough not to need a cancer diagnosis to see that, but apparently <laughs> I needed to get hit over the head. But that was a turning point where I just went, okay. I." And I had a, my daughter as well, but I had a little boy that he fought. Yeah. And he embraced everything. I thought he lived wholeheartedly and what a slap in the face that I can't do the same, even with, even without him, I should look at him as an example and not dismiss all that life and, and light, you know, and I had this darkness and kind of this aura, you know, I used to tell my friends, I must be as pleasant to visit as a 90 year old in a nursing care who's has no memory. You know I mean? I just, yeah, you were stuck. You were stuck. Yeah. And I think if I couldn't be a better friend, I'm going to lose my friends. So I started being more aware of working on myself. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned
1: that fact that you feel like that was a mistake that you kind of made early on, because that Mm -hmm. is what, what I'm certainly trying to do. What others are trying to do is trying to keep people from getting stuck and that there is hope yeah. and you need to live with hope. I mean, to live right. just, you know, that that makes me so sad to hear you say, oh, it's just my luck. I'm going to live till 95. Yeah. And I know I've yeah. had those yeah. moments too, where I feel like, gosh, and it does still terrify me, the idea of living till 95 and having to live so many more years without my boy. But you you, it's just that's so sad I mean it just breaks my heart to hear that's what you were thinking and that I don't need anyone to help me because I'm just going to be this miserable kind of forever
2: right yeah I kind of just resigned myself and you know like I said I didn't seek out professional help but I was really lucky in a few ways where it's almost like the right people came to me like Mm -hmm in a way, sought me out. So for instance, we have a we had a neighbor that moved down the, uh, like at the corner of our street. And I had no idea who she was. She came to raise visitation and introduced herself. I mean, she, we had never met. And she goes, you don't know me, but my name is Kay. And I live at the end of your block. And your son was the first to welcome me to the neighborhood. I, I thought, how long ago? And she goes, four years, which would have made him eight. Wow. And I thought, you had a little relationship with Ray for four years. And I didn't know. And I immediately thought, I'm a crummy neighbor. Like, why didn't I go introduce myself? And I, I just, you know, that she came out and, and said, yeah, he was the first to welcome me. So maybe a month later, so he died in April. It was Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. Memorial Day. And Martha asked if I would set up a tent in the backyard. What well, was a tent I bought that Rain ever got to, to use? I mean, he died before we ever yeah. went on a camping trip. And in fact, the morning that he was getting ready for school on his last day, we talked about that tent and all the places we wanted to go. And then Martha asked, if I could set it up in the backyard for her and her friends and I thought this isn't right like he should be here and so it was just kind of this gut-wrenching exercise to put that tent up and I pounded in the last steak and just kind of had a meltdown and I ran to our front yard and sat on our front porch and just kind of you know whatever regrouped and all of a sudden I see this woman walking up to our house and I thought I don't want to talk to anyone. I, I'm crying I you know, I probably haven't showered. I don't know what I'm wearing. I'm just, yeah. you know, kind of a mess, but it was too late. You know, we made eye contact and she's approaching my front steps. I wanted to duck out and get inside. And she just took a uninvited seat next to me. And I kind of thought, what are you doing? And I recognized her when she start, got closer that she was Kay uh-huh. from the visitation. And she sat next to me and she said, Darla, I would recognize your pain if I saw you walking down the street. I would recognize it if I didn't even know what happened to your family. And I thought, well, what's your first clue? Like, I'm a mess. You know, I I didn't say anything, but I was kind of angry that she just plunked herself down and and thought that was okay. That's where my head was at. And I said, really? She goes, yeah, because I lost my son. He was 10 years old, and he, he drowned in the St. Croix River. And then I just felt ashamed for what I had been thinking. And it took a while, and I said, how long ago? And to me, she looked to be somewhere in her mid-60s, maybe late 60s. And she said, and I'll never forget this, and it's just ring so true. She said, 1968, yesterday, an hour ago. I, went, I go, oh, so, yeah, <laughs> I got queenix here. <laughs> I like, well, that's how it is, you know, you, an hour's as good as it gets, you know, I just thought she has to, 1968, this is 2001, when Ray died, how has she been doing it all these years, and so I asked her, I said, what do you believe, like, what do you, how have you done this? And I said, I go, do you believe her, her son was Stephen. I go, do you think you'll be re- reunited with him? Do you think you'll see him again? What do you believe? Because I, everything I believe didn't make any sense to me.
1: Yeah.
2: And she said, it was the first time, because I had a lot of people bringing up religion and, you know, God wouldn't want you to be sent. Yeah, I heard Ray wouldn't want you to be sent. Oh, sad. I, hate and I, think, I hate that.
1: I hate that. I hate that. I hate that. I think it's like that is not helpful you just make me feel guilty now too thanks
2: <laughs> yeah well, and i'd always think uh, you don't know ray if... <laughs> right 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 he'd go i could just picture him saying like he, yeah. i died and you're not even sad didn't i matter you know it's like when you lose a child sad is really the only option like yeah. destroyed really or i'd hear you know he's an angel he's a better. god needed reason. an angel yeah. And I'm like,
1: no, I needed him here. That's what I want to say every time.
2: Yeah, Right. And my daughter, it's like she knew him better than anyone. And somebody told her, well, Ray's your angel now. And she goes, no, he's not. He's my helpful ghost. (laughs) And I thought, a helpful ghost is a better way to describe Ray than an angel. (laughs) So even she thought it was an absurd, you know, notion. And the worst, and I'm sure you've heard this, is, you know, God only gives what you can handle. And I think, Oh, I really, I and I, I complained about that to a friend once. And I said, I'm so tired of people saying, yeah, God only does what you can handle. And she said, well, quit acting so tough, and he'll be easier on you. <laughs> like,
1: You know, what's so funny is I just had a conversation with somebody about that very verse, and that is completely misquoted. So what what that is in the Bible is God doesn't give you more temptation than you can handle. It has nothing to do with pain or sorrow or anything. How does that
2: get misconstrued? It only has to do with
1: temptation. And people take it completely out of context and put it with your grief and sorrow and what you've gone through. And it's not at all right. It's totally wrong.
2: One time I went and talked to my minister and he he was the minister the night Ray was getting his first communion. Mm -hmm. And I said, you... You tell me, why does a child die? Why does a 12-year-old boy die? He goes, I don't know. And I just thought, okay, this guy of all people has no yeah. biblical wisdom to bestow on me. And he goes, I don't understand why a 12-year-old boy dies. I don't understand why an 80-year-old woman dies. All I know for sure is your time here is limited. It's a about a grain of sand compared to an eternity in paradise. And he goes, I know you're hurting. But how are you gonna live? How are you going to spend your short time here? So he switched responsibility on me and not God, which gave me something to think about, but flash forward when I met Kay, and she said 1968, yesterday, an hour ago, you know, that was like the first time I thought I have to hand it to her. It's so the first time I felt like, okay, this makes sense more than any other, yeah. you know, advice I was getting religious wise. And, but I asked her, I said, what do you, what do you believe? And she was, I don't believe some, you know, God took Stephen, and he's in some white, you know, fluffy cloud. That's not my idea of heaven. And she was, I believe there's a, a cycle. There's a, cycle to life and you you can still see the beauty in the world I see my son when the sun sets I see him when I hear beautiful music and she goes you will find beauty in the world she goes and I saw him when Ray stood at my door and said welcome she goes I saw my Stephen I'm like oh you know so how do you argue that (laughs) we just sat there for a while and she said Darla you you can make your your own heaven right here. And I kind of asked her, you know, what does that look like? And she goes, you start to extend yourself to other people and you will find the beauty in this world again. And then she warned me, you can also make your own hell right here on earth. And she said, when she's alone and stuck with herself and aware of every miserable thought she has, that to her is hell. And then she got up and left and said, I'll come visit you another time. And I was left there to think I am stuck. I am in my own hell, I am stuck with every miserable thought. And I need to, I need to change that. And it was probably, you know, I mean, a a few years later, I ended up with cancer, which really pushed me into the right direction. But I had all these little bits of wisdom that Kay kept coming back and talking to me. So she did pull me in the right direction. And I, you know, you're not alone. There are people that experience what you experience. And um, recently, which is, uh, you know, kind of cracks me up, but I was a guest speaker at a support group, grief support group. And I thought, well, this is ironic (laughs) because I've never, you know, (laughs) I never sought this out myself. But I, you know, they wanted to hear about my book and, and I, uh, I just looked around, I thought, I got to commend these people. Like they were smart enough and vulnerable enough for, to seek that out. And I got to meet everybody afterwards and had all these wonderful conversations. And I thought everything I thought this wouldn't be for me yeah. would have been wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I had that really wrong. And so if there's anything, I would encourage other parents to, to try that, you know, just. There is so much
1: comfort in being able to be with people who get you and understand you.
2: Yeah. 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 Because you, without it, I could only, and I don't know if this rings true with you. I could only be with my friends or family for a limited amount of time a limited amount of time where I could fake it right before I had to pull away and just go back to what was bothering me or what, you know, I, I couldn't, I couldn't embrace their joy. Like even Christmas time, it's like, yeah, can we do something different? Can we do something and raise honor? Do, do I have to be status quo? I, and then you feel guilty because it's like, I don't want to ruin your yep. holiday and your joy, but I can't, this is too much I'm hurting thing. here yeah I'm hurting so I kept pulling away even you know soon after he passed going to the grocery store was I'd put something in the cart that only he liked yeah and go oh I don't Yeah, you know you put that back on the shelf oh. I more than once left a f- cart full of food and just ran out of the store you know I tell the cashier I'm like there's a full cart back there I got I have an emergency I have to leave you know and I'd leave my cart but I I couldn't do what you would normally do and couldn't embrace other people for long periods of time and little by little that got better but it's almost like I'm out where he isn't Mm -hmm. and he was at my home that's my safety I'm gonna I need to go home
1: well, and I think that's what those other bereaved people can do for you is they just are so much, it's so much safer, I would say, yeah. to feel like you are surrounded yeah. by those people, because now you don't have to fake it all the time. You know, I, exactly. I mean, I can get exactly. together with other bereaved moms, and I can feel like it will be okay. If I start to cry, no one will judge me. It will be okay right. if I start laughing uncontrollably. No one will judge me. Because the other thing is, right. sometimes you feel like you don't want to look too happy because then people will think, oh, "Oh, yeah, you know what? She's good now. We don't have to worry about her anymore." Right. Right. And you don't right. you don't want that right. either, right? It's this such right. a weird I don't know. I feel like you're walking on this tightrope all the time not wanting I don't know. I just yeah. feel like then I think about what are people thinking? What are people thinking? And are they thinking I'm totally fine? Are they thinking I'm a mess? Because really, I'm somewhere in the middle. And sometimes I am pretty fine. Mm-hmm. And other times I am a mess. And I wish everyone would know that it's not either or, that I am everything, right? I'm not even somewhere in right. between. I'm all of it. Right. I'm a mess and I'm fine. So it well, just depends on the mind.
2: I have a chapter in my book called "Stages of Nothing." Yeah, and it's you know all the different stages. It's like yeah, okay, I get, I get that there supposedly are stages, but in the end, it didn't. It didn't matter to me. It's like pain is pain, death is death. I don't care if I'm in the depression or acceptance or denial or. I didn't feel stages because to me that's temporary. And you move through these stages that didn't make any sense to me yeah. because like what you're saying i feel all of it all of the time yeah I, it's not one or the other or it's a blend of everything all of the time mm-hmm. and it and you're right people that other parents that have perfectly healthy children and their children are alive they don't know what we're going through and you know even the things that bothered me that people would say that would make me angry i think they don't know what to say so it's yeah. to their credit for even trying but it doesn't help and had i met with yeah. you know a group of other moms that would have been a healthier place for me to be i see that now and and all i can say is anybody comes after me at least i can I mean, experience is something after I have experienced what not to do, maybe I think I can direct a little bit better to go, 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 talk to someone who's, you know, even that one moment.
1: You don't want the next person to have to get cancer. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: yes. <laughs> to put you where you are right now. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like I, I have a voice to help too. And I think through my Story. There's power and sharing, and everything I kept so close, mm-hmm. and didn't talk about, has opened a door. And I think when we share our stories, we can enlighten, we can make people think, we can make them feel, we can inspire. It can bring about change, and I'm seeing that now with with the feedback I'm getting from other parents who've lost children or CF families, siblings that have lost, you know, a sibling and people that have experienced none of this, but resonate with, hey, even I don't have these challenges and I'm not living fully. If Ray can do this, if Martha can do this, they're finding out, okay, I, I need to pay attention. I need to live more fully and so if that's the one takeaway from muddy thursday my book then i've done my job then i i have carried on ray's legacy in a way you know so yeah i it's been powerful and i i feel better where i'm at now and it's been 20 years but it's i mean and it got better slowly over Mm -hmm. time but reaching out i'm seeing the power in that and so i know these support groups and what you're doing with your podcast is so beneficial. And so I'm glad I found you.
1: I'm glad you yeah. found me too. I'm so glad that you wrote.
2: <laughs> Tell people how they can find the book. Okay. So yeah, it's available on Amazon in uh, ebook and paperback. And then I don't want to lose sight of the independent bookstores. So it's available to order. And I don't have, it's kind of hard to get a self-published book on a bookshelf. Uh-huh. But you could call any, or go to any independent bookstore or Barnes and Noble, and they'll order it, and they ship too. So that's another route. But yeah, it's on Amazon, and and it's doing well, and I'm you know getting good reviews, and it just it just makes me happy because when you're writing, you have no idea, right, what a reader's going to think of it. You know, you're you're holed up in a room by yourself, and it's like I think I got the point across, but you just don't know. So to have this wonderful response to it, and people are pulling out what resonates with them, and they're sharing what something meant to them. And I'm like, Oh, good, good. I got, you know, this or that hit. Yeah, with something. So it's been, it's
1: been really sweet that way. Right. And just bringing a little bit of understanding to people.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then we all have challenges, but this one's a big one. And yeah, it is a big one. Parents have gone through they know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know if you like when you lost your son. Did you read? Did you? I would look for books. I wouldn't find things that Oh my goodness, people gave me
1: so many books. I have stacks of books. I, I read some books, rare bird I loved. Um, I've I've had that. Okay. I've had her on the show before. She's fantastic. And uh, Anna Winston Donaldson is her name. I, and I read some books. We got, believe it or not, nine copies of one book, Lament for a Son. <laughs> so, so I read that oh. book. <laughs> my my husband read yeah. it. He he really loved it. Uh-huh. So anyway, people just gave us books. I felt like that was a common thing. But for me, it was really hard to read most books.
2: Um yeah, yeah. I remember when I started writing, I thought, I, w- I wonder if there's books written by parents who have lost a child that would, I kind of wanted to see how do they handle it? How do they, how do they take this topic and, and write about it? And so I went to Barnes and Noble and, you know, one of the clerks came up to me and she was, Oh, can I help you? And I said, well, this is really specific, but I'm, do you have books written by a mom or a dad about the loss of a child? And she had to kind of think, and she she goes, well, let's look over here. And she takes me to the, like the spiritual, religious kind of self-help section. And in my sarcastic little brain, I'm walking behind her thinking, I bet there's atheists that have lost children. Like, what do they read? (laughs) Not that I am, but I was like, okay, this is the section. And, you know, I'm looking at, there wasn't a lot to pick from, but I'm looking at, to to figure out what I was gonna buy. And then she came back to me, she goes, oh, there's another section. And she takes me to the very back of the store and it was the grief and bereavement section and it was more how to. Mm -hmm. And so she goes, there's only a couple here that were written by parents. And it was kind of, um, you know, 10 things I learned about grief or, you know. And I thought, well, I'm I'm not a, I'll leave that to the professionals. I'm not a grief counselor. I didn't write a how to book. I don't have a degree in theology. I I'm not a religious leader. I'll leave that to somebody who can speak to that. So I'm like, where does my book fit in? And I decided I, I'm, I'm just going to tell my story Mm
1: -hmm. and
2: whatever you can take from it. And nobody's more surprised, but there is a religious thread that runs through this, even the title. Is a play on on words muddy thursday my son died on Monday, thursday mm-hmm. the christian holy day before mm-hmm. easter mm-hmm. which commemorates the washing of the feet communion and the last supper mm-hmm. so i never put this together until i was writing i mean ray died having his first communion we met my parents and we had what would be unbeknownst to us our last dinner together and that night, Ray, Ray was, he was playing with a group of his friends and I had to call him home. I go, you got to get ready for church. And he came in the door muddy, like his uh, pants were muddy and his shoes. And he ran into his room to change, kind of like hiding this. And I thought, how did he get so muddy and didn't have a chance to ask him. And we get up to church and he's, you know, up to the altar for communion and he holds his hands out to receive the you know body of Christ and every fingernails caked in mud. And all I could think is, I never have my act together. I didn't even see to it that my son washed up properly for his first communion. I find out maybe a couple months later, one of the boys he was hanging out with that night, his mom said, did you ever, did you know what Ray was up to before, you know, the night he died? I said I know he he said he was on a scooter and he was in this new development across the way and so there's all this mounds of dirt because they were building and she goes I'm going to have my son tell you about it so her son actually wrote a story about that night they had been playing and they went and used a porta potty at some point and when they had like a piece of plywood because it was muddy and dirty out so whoever you know had set that up well ray slipped off that plywood and you know stepped right into the mucky you know mud so his shoes are covered with mud his socks are wet and he wants his friend to switch shoes with him because my feet are cold and they're wet can i switch shoes and Tyler's like no that my feet are going to be muddy and your dirty socks somebody goes no and then he dares ray he goes why don't you go up to that house over there and see what see if they can help you And Ray goes, okay so he knocks on a stranger's door and said, hey my you know my name's Ray I just live up the block. my shoes are muddy and dirty. you wouldn't happen to have a pair of shoes I could borrow." And the guy goes in and gets a pair of shoes and then he's sitting on the stoop and he's gonna put this sh- you know switch his shoes and he goes, you know my socks are wet and my feet are are muddy do you have any socks I could have? And he goes, okay, he brings out a pair of socks. <laughs> and then he goes, well, I kind of need to wipe the mud off my feet. So he goes in and gets paper towels. And I never like, it was one of the last things I wrote. I'm like, muddy do you th- Mon- Monday, Thursday? Yeah, the washing of the feet, which is a sign of love and humility. Mm-hmm. And I thought well, I can picture him washing his feet that night, then it's communion. And then it's the Last Supper. And then he dies, like, with his arms wide open, like, you know, on the cross, or, you know, his position. And that all came together. And I thought, okay, that mud was the symbolic of this boy playing hard till the end. Yeah. And it also muddied up my psyche, my life. And so that night is muddy Thursday to me. It's always been this muddy thing, good and bad. And so that's how the title came about. I love that. There's all these weird parallels that came into play and I flash back to my childhood and I flash back to my husband's childhood and all the things that we went through that shaped who we became as parents of two children with, with a life threatening illness. And so I kind of believe there's this thread that weaves itself through childhood into adulthood. And piece by piece, it kind of shapes us into the people we were meant to be. Mm -hmm. And and you've drawn those strengths. And so there's a, a lot more going on than just some sweet vignettes about a boy. Yeah. Just expanded into everything that merged and the meaning behind everything kind of melded into a bigger story. So the time between his death and now seems like a lot. But like I said earlier, it's it's actually right on time. Yeah. Because it took me a while to, to yeah. find all these hidden meanings. And that religious peace became more vivid to me as time went by.
1: Yeah. And gives you more peace too now, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I fought it for the longest time and and now I'm embracing it. Yeah. So there's there's well, healing and hope and you know. Yeah. Well, thank
1: you so much for sharing with us today, Darla. I really enjoyed our conversation.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. We are always looking for new show ideas. If you'd like to be a guest, know someone who'd be a great guest, or have a show idea, please email us at marcy at Be sure to visit the webpage andysmom.com for more content, including Marcy's blog. There you can also sign up to receive updates via email. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.